Hi, this is Marta. Welcome to the podcast Invisible to Visible, where our goal is simply to make women more visible. We will meet once a month and discuss everything and anything that impacts a woman's day-to-day life. So let's talk, explore and ask many, many questions. In the world that strives to be more equal, why does it sometimes feel that when it comes to different laws and legislation, family life and the big corporate world, women are still often invisible? Well, grab a cup of coffee or tea, depends on your preference, and let's start. Hello, Tina. How are you? I am well. I am so, so excited for you to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. I really am. I am thrilled to be here. I hope you've got a nice little nightcap on your side. I still, uh, it's still a work day on this side of the pond. No, it's eight o'clock here and I just put my kids to bed. Um, we kind of schedule it in the way that it's before your bedtime routine and after my bedtime routine. That's two moms scheduling things. That is correct. <laughs> yeah. So let me introduce you to everyone. Sure. Um, so let's let's let give me like five minutes to read all of your achievements. <laughs> Praise yourself. Just pick every fifth word. You can you can skip <laughs> along. You know. Um, so Christina Wallace, uh, you are a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, where you teach entrepreneurship, marca- marketing, and you co-lead the Startup Bootcamp Immersion Program. You are a book author angel investor, mentor, and public speaker on topics including entrepreneurship, failure, and women in tech. You describe yourself as human Venn diagram, and you crafted an amazing career in business, technology, and arts. In your very recent book, The Portfolio Life, How to future-proof your career, avoid burnout, and build a life bigger than your business card. You talk about not focusing on one career path, but rather exploring different subjects that one might be interested in. Previous to that, you co-author or new to big, how companies can create like entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, invest like VCs, and install, install a permanent operating system for growth. Before that, you were vice president of growth at Bionic, an innovation consulting firm that builds startups inside larger enterprises. Prior to joining them, you founded BridgeUp STEM an EdTech startup inside the American Museum of National History. You're a founding director of Startup Institute New York and co-founder and CEO of venture-backed fashion company Quincy Apparel. Mashable called you one of uh, 44 female founders to know. A refinery named you one of the most powerful women in New York tech. I probably could carry on for another 10 minutes and keep listing all your achievements. That is very impressive. You know, it's uh, you write these things <laughs> mostly because you're like, I should probably put all this information somewhere. And then you hear them read back and you're like, I could cut out 80% of that. So this was helpful. I'm going to go back no. and trim that down. Not at all. That is very, very impressive. I think like I have like a hashtag stalker at this stage. You know, I've read everything and I've listened to possibly everything I could listen about you. It is very, very impressive. You are my number one topic. When you look at my, you know, my web browser, it's like Christina Wallace and this and Christina Wallace and that. Yeah. 
Well, I'm thrilled and I'm particularly thrilled that you're you're intrigued by the book and about these ideas. I mean, certainly it seems like this is a, a topic that has resonated uh, around the world with a whole bunch of different people. But in particular, there's something about working moms who are juggling a bunch of different things and have had to make big shifts in their life when they became a parent absolutely uh, in order to make their life work and and there's still some rebalancing that might need to happen you know as they go through these different seasons to make them still feel connected to their work and to themselves um, so i love that you found the book and found me uh, it sounds like we have a lot in common here. Yeah, I'm really, this is absolutely what happened. When I um, became mom, that was five years ago at this stage. Oh gosh, five years, that's a long time. <laughs> that's a long, long time of tiredness and sleepless yes. nights. <laughs> Definitely things has changed and I started looking at life differently. That's for sure. Um and then my second baby came two years ago and that added to the tiredness of the first mm -hmm, one. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely two babies, is, it, it's definitely more work. And then trying to navigate the work-life balance, which is mm -hmm. quite hard when you're a mom and when you're trying to have a career, mm -hmm. uh, trying to have something for yourself and trying mm -hmm. to make sure that the kids have childhood that you want them to have. Mm -hmm definitely a challenge um but sure loads of mama are, are doing it so it's definitely doable and i suppose where i want to start is um as i said before you've built a very successful career in business technology and arts which is mm -hmm. quite unusual and the first thing that pops into my head is that when i was growing up the narrative was always that you have to find the one thing mm -hmm. be best at it and that's how you build your career so tell me how was that with you how you, you had quite a diverse interest from the very early stage I so did. what were your parents telling you because it <laughs> seems they were telling you different things what my parents were telling me <laughs> So I was raised by my mother and my maternal grandparents and um and they, my maternal grandparents, were both uh, like children of farmers in the middle of nowhere, Michigan. They were very sort of uh, lower income childhood, very, um, you know, education wasn't really emphasized. It was more of just mm. like, get up, get married and like build a life. So my grandfather built cars on the, the assembly line for 40 years. My grandmother was a homemaker and my mom was a secretary. And so on in the one, you know, perspective, they were absolutely touting this narrative of pick a thing, get a job, be loyal to a company and stay there for your whole life. Right. That was certainly what my grandfather did. Um, and even my mom, she's she's changed uh, companies that she's worked for, but has still been a very straight and narrow like she's a secretary. And at the same time that they're saying this thing about how the world works, they're actively encouraging all of these other things that I, I do and that I love. I started training as a classical pianist at four and added cello and voice and took music theory classes and ear training and played in orchestras and sang in choirs. I mean, my entire childhood was 
was training in classical music with, for a long time, the sort of understanding that I would go to become a professional classical musician. Like that was hmm. in some ways what was being encouraged. Um, I think I'm the only person alive whose parents were devastated when I didn't become a, a musician. <laughs> Yeah, it's not and considered the most the we, the most well paid job in the whole world. No, and at the same time, I loved math. Yeah. I loved student council. I was always that like know it all who always was helping the teachers and uh, you know as advanced in every class I was in, and so it was a very kind of lonely childhood. I didn't have friends for the most part, um, and I. I filled that time with all of my things, right? Reading mm. and writing stories and doing math and playing music. So when I got to college, um, got to university, I was like, why should I start to choose? Like, I don't want to choose. I still want to do all the things. And so I still, I double majored in math and theater. I did minors in music, physics, and political science. I was like, I want to do all of the things. And then when I graduated and needed a job, my first thought was that I was going to make a career in the performing arts, that I'd be a theater director and a producer. And part of sure. the mindset in the artistic world is that you got to hustle. You're going to have lots of different income streams because nothing is is all of that secure. So it was completely natural to be like, well, maybe your day job will be as a theater director, but if you get an opportunity to be a carpenter and build some sets for this project or arrange the music for that project or teach piano lessons at the church to right like the the mindset was always like you're going to have a number of moving pieces and then when i got to new york and i got a job in the metropolitan opera on the management side that was sort of my day job i realized that my way of thinking the systems and the math and the the producing that, that was a system that was really useful in management and that the management of the arts might be an opportunity for me to start to combine all of these crazy yeah. things I liked doing in a cohesive way. And I suppose you talk a lot about it in your TED Talk, uh, San Diego, when you talk about people either be left-brained or right-brained. And I'm, I would consider... My, so the left brain people are logical and organized and the right brain people are expressive and creative. And up to a very short time ago, I would always think about myself, well, I must be left brained because I'm a chartered accountant. I'm all about maths. I've always been told I'm not very good at arts. Uh, I'm not creative. Well, I probably talked myself into the fact that I'm not creative because mm -hmm. recently I was... I was doing work and I work with this girl uh, called Carla. Hi, Carla. Hope you're listening. I know you are. <laughs> and so, and then she just turned around and said, Marta, I actually think you are very creative. And this is the first time somebody said to me that I'm creative. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe I am. So, well, this podcast is definitely the most creative <laughs> thing I've ever done in my life. So, um, yeah, what does research tell us now? Because you did kind of talked about research, why actually this is not true. It's not mm -hmm. that we either left-brained or right-brained. There is a mix of both yes. in it. Yes, yeah. this is one of my biggest frustrations that that somehow this framework of left-brain, yeah. right-brain uh, distinctions has persisted because the original research that that idea was based on 
was focused really on how much you need both sides of your brain to do almost anything. And that there are, you know, different parts of your brain that emphasize different ways of, of working, of thinking, of, um, of you know, where, where language is stored, where vision is stored, where sense are stored, right? That is true. There are different lobes do different jobs. But on the whole, your brain is working together to accomplish certain things. And so this idea that left-brained is analytical, right-brained is creative, and that you are one or the other, it's completely false. It's completely false. And as you correctly identified, because of this idea, people start telling themselves stories about themselves. Or we we start telling children, right? And then they start repeating it. They're like, oh, well, you are analytical, so you must not be creative. And you're like, did you Definitely. draw pictures with crayons when you were a child? Because I promise you did. All children are creative. Yeah, well, I have to, definitely my two are, but when I was a kid, I think it was more because I was good at maths and all the physics and science and chemistry, this, the numbers always came easy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I It was just assumed that art is now my strong side. Mm-hmm. And as, as for example, I have, I have a sister very close to my age and she was very artistic now the numbers might not have been her stronger point and for that reason I always thought well I'm mathematical she is artistic it's as simple as as that Um, but maybe that's not the case maybe there is an artist that lives inside me I just need to drag her out Um, I I fully believe this I think Mm. everyone is creative it's much more of uh, the question of how strong is your creativity muscle right how recently have you used it How are you challenging it? How are you inspiring it by being around other people who are thinking creatively? If you are forced to be creative, you will suddenly realize how creative you are. And I think every, you know, every mom who's at some point been focused on like, ah, I don't have any of the resources I need. And yet I still have to like make a miracle happen right now. You get pretty creative. Uh, So you have it in you. It's just, we tell ourselves these stories. And so much of this, this is why I focus this model, really starting from a place of identity, of recognizing you are more than your job Mm. and you can do more than one thing. You have different skills, different preferences, sure, different places where you might have a superpower, but a superpower in one area doesn't then require you to be not good at something else. Like both things can be true. Yeah, that's, well, thanks very much because I definitely did, that's the new thing I'm going to believe in. That, uh, <laughs> you know, I can be more artistic and I'm going to be more creative mm-hmm. and do more creative things in my life and try to think of a new things that I can try. I definitely now reaching a point of my life. Um, I'm still very young, as I call myself, but I have a few years of experience behind me now. <laughs> and I just feel like I got to a stage, you know, when they tell you, like, in your 20s, you're really worried what people are thinking about you. In your 30s, you stop worrying about it. So that's where I am. And probably another 10 years, and I realized they were never talking about me in the first place. <laughs> so give me another 10 years. But that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying new things. I've always worked in 
finance department, but in IT companies. So when I graduated from school, when I got my professional exams done, I decided to move into industry. And the first job I got was within IT sector and finance department within IT sector. Then I got again another job in IT sector and then another one in IT sector. So then a few months ago, I was like, I need to get out of my comfort zone because it seems like I know a lot about IT sector, but I don't know much about other sectors, other industries. So I decided to change jobs and go to the most opposite I could find, opposite industry I could find, still in finance. I'm not going to get going away from finance. And then I thought, okay, I've been working for the last six years in this amazing company, very procedure-driven, procedure where, you know, 20 years on the market, everything runs smoothly. I want to go to somewhere maybe a bit newer. So I decided to look for um, a company who might be on the market a bit shorter time, who is not with an IT. It was quite challenging, I have to tell you, because it's just like, People was trying to box me. I was yeah. calling, talking to recruiters, calling different um, uh, companies. And the minute they kind of looked at my CV, it was like, well, you're very, your experience very IT heavy. Well, why do you want to leave IT? And like, you don't know much about this new industry. And I'm like, yes, exactly. That's the point. That's exactly <laughs> the point. Mm -hmm. So it felt like the world is trying to box me into this, well, that's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to work in a finance department in IT industry. And I'm not saying I won't come back to IT industry. I pretty much liked it. But for a different experience, I really yeah. wanted to try something else. So um, how do we overcome that in later stage? How do we go about finding different streams of work that might not be directly related to what we're doing now? Yeah, yeah. there's a couple of things uh, that are involved there, right? So one is... People, uh, they're trying to make sense of, of complex human beings and they only have a couple of data points, right? And that's what your CV is boiling down years and years and years of work and expertise into a handful of words. And so based off of that shorthand, they're like, ah, uh, make it make sense. So the, the first thing you have to do when you're trying to make a zigzag, you're trying to do something a little bit different than you've done before, is you've got to find the story of why you're making this change and how what you've done up to this point is absolutely relevant to what you plan on doing next. So showing up with a, a narrative that you believe, you're, you're never going to win anyone over if you're like, I don't actually believe this. So first you got to figure it out for yourself. But I think it's fairly obvious to say finance is finance finance like the function is the expertise and I come to this new opportunity with all of these best practices from more established companies that yes we're all in the same sector but that's not the point the point is I have this relevant experience and now I'm excited to work with a startup or a younger company and bring some of that best practice to your finance department, right? So you're finding what are you bringing and not just, hey, I want something new and you're gonna give me this learning experience. No one wants to hire you for a learning experience. They wanna hire you for your expertise. So step one, you gotta find the narrative and you gotta believe it before anyone else will. Step two is you have to leave breadcrumbs of this, of this life, of this work that you're doing. So if you have never 
done anything, not a single thing outside of this world, it probably is gonna look a little bit strange. So there are ways that you can start to leave some breadcrumbs of that change in interest before you try to make that pivot. Can you write a blog post or invite someone on your podcast from that new area <laughs> and talk about it? Can you, uh, you know, uh, leave a quote somewhere in, in a piece that someone is writing? Go to a conference, meet some people from that new space, start to develop relationships, a track record, even if it's not a professional, even if it's just through hobbies or a thing you're doing on the side for fun, but you start demonstrating an interest in this new world, then it's not so strange when you say, hey, professionally, I've done one thing. Personally, I've done this other thing. And now in this next segment of my life, I want to combine that professional and those personal interests into this new path. So part of it is you got to you got to have some evidence. And the other part is just figure out what the story is. Yeah, love it. Love that voice. I kind of did that a little bit. And <laughs> I was like, write a blog. Tick, I've done that. And guess what? It wasn't about, I was working uh, for this amazing company for six years. And it was with an IT world, of course, but it was very, very uh, female friendly company, family friendly company. And that's exactly what I wrote my blog about, um, about what it is like to work in a company that is so female friendly. Um, and invest in woman, which was really, really great to work in in that environment. Um, so definitely done that podcast, done that. I'm on the, <laughs> on the right road here. But do you know what I'm thinking, Christina? It's a little bit. It's it's once you know that's what you want to do, it's great. And it took me a good few years to kind of be brave enough and do it because mm -hmm. it's very easy to stay in that comfort zone. And IT world was my comfort zone. And it's quite, I really wanted the first episode of this series of podcasts be about coming out of your comfort zone. Because I think this is, this is the biggest thing. Once you kind of stop being afraid of failure, and we'll talk about failure in a second. <laughs> and once you kind of stop being afraid of coming out of a comfort zone and trying new things and stop thinking, what will people say? Because it actually doesn't matter. You enjoy what you're doing. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what I was repeating to myself every so often when I was getting this panic attack about this podcast. Like, doesn't matter. You're loving it. You're enjoying it. You're going to do great. So that was my, that was what I was kind of feeding myself with. But what kind of advice do you give to women to do that and try it? Because I think all of us have that in ourselves. We have this thing we think, oh, would it be great to do this? Or oh, wouldn't it be great to write a book? Or oh, wouldn't it be great to do this project? And then we do nothing. Like mm -hmm. I did for 10 years. This is the first thing I do that I'm actually actioning what was in my head. Yeah. So what advice do you give to women to come out of their comfort zone and just, just do it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is absolutely related to the conversation on failure, because I think for most of us, we we have this idea of what we want to do, and then we do a little quick assessment and we think, that's going to take so much work to do it at the level that I expect from myself. So sometimes the success of a project is just starting, right? It doesn't have to be a 10. It could be a two. It could be a one. But but by trying, 
you've learned something. Whereas if you're only thinking, if you're only analyzing or planning, you never actually learn anything. So you might go and make a first version of of something. And at the end, you might say, well, that that doesn't look very good. But I know exactly what I'll do different next time. That is progress. So part of this is, is losing that perfectionist tendency, putting that aside, and allowing yourself something less than amazing without seeing it as a waste of your time. And when you can allow yourself to be bad at something, to be human, to be a beginner, when you're an expert at everything else in your life, only then will you actually get to make something new. That's that's brilliant. That's exactly what um, I'm doing right now, <laughs> allowing myself not to be perfect. <laughs> that's exactly what's happening. Because when I look, um, I've always been afraid of failure. And I look, but when I look back, I think so many opportunities passed on because I was just not trying. I've always tried things that I knew I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we go. <laughs> here, here comes the podcast. So tell us about your experience of failure. I know you have a little bit. Um, a little, some, a little some, bit. Some, some big story, some big story to share here. Yeah. So uh, like you, I never tried anything I wasn't guaranteed to be good at because being amazing, being expert at something was my identity all the way through school. And this is very common, I think, for high achieving women and girls. We're good at school because the rules are laid out and we follow the rules. And then you get into the real world and you're like, the rules are much less clear out here. I don't know how I'm being measured. I don't know what the cost of being wrong is. And so we start to play it safe. And then I started my first company and By many measures, I did it all right. I raised money, I had a partner, we built a a product that people wanted, our customers loved us, but we had a bunch of hiccups. We were first-time entrepreneurs, we made classic first-time entrepreneur mistakes, and we ran out of money while we were still trying to figure out how to make this business work. And we had to shut down. And um, it was just a straight up failure. We had press articles written about us when we were succeeding. And so, of course, they wrote follow ups when we failed. (laughs) And it was hard. It was hard. And when the whole thing shut down, I went home, I crawled in bed and I didn't talk to anyone for three weeks. And I was like, holy crap. Like, who am I? Who Mm -hmm. am I if I'm a failure? I don't recognize this story. And then I realized after three weeks of watching TV, I realized um, that I needed a different narrative. I had to work on of changing the story I told myself about myself um, so that it wasn't I show up and I succeed. It's I show up and I work really hard. I try my best and I learn. And to do that, I had to practice being bad at things. I, I really hadn't done that ever. So I took up long distance running because I am a really slow runner. Like I'm a bad runner. (laughs) Um, And I, and I know there are ways that you can become a better runner. There's like training and weightlifting and I am not interested in spending my time learning how to become a better runner. (laughs) 
So neither would I. I wouldn't be either. I I just Ronic decided is not my thing. It's not it. But I decided I was gonna get get familiar with being bad at something. And so I started running half marathons, full marathons. And they took me forever. I mean, it took me almost six hours to run a marathon. I've done it three times. That's a long time where every single step you're like, I am bad at this. I am bad at this. (laughs) And I'm still here. I'm still doing it. I'm still trying. And so it helped me reshape my relationship with effort and intention and, uh, and, and dreams separate from uh, the evaluation that I might do before I even step, you know, put one foot out there. Um, it really helped me be okay with some taking some risks. And then after I got much better at this, I started reading a bunch of the research on, on high performing people on you know, the artists and the scientists and the creatives who have, who have built some of the most, you know, important and impressive things from, from inventions to art over the past several hundred years. And what I found really interesting about that research is that for the most part, the people that have been the most creative have also been the most prolific and that if you look at their whole body of work, they have as many or more duds as they have masterpieces. Mm. And it was just about shots on goal. Like they just took enough stabs at the problem that they had some good stuff that came out of it. But like Shakespeare wrote, wrote Hamlet, most impressive play of the Western canon. He also wrote Troilus and Cressida, right? Like, it's a, it's a terrible play. It's awful. <laughs> and, and we don't fault him for Troilus and Cressida. Yeah. We praise him for Hamlet and Lear and Macbeth. So I try to think about, okay, so if that, that one didn't work, what are you going to do for the next one? What's your next idea? What's your next effort? Rather than beat myself up for the one that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. Love it. I definitely, well, I'm hoping the podcast is not going to be my biggest failure because I really love it. And anyone who knows me knows how much I love talking. This is the talking <laughs> is my thing. I love it. So hoping that's not it, but I'll take something up, something different. Maybe I don't know, I'll sing or something. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I'm a good singer. So maybe I'll just go do one go karaoke. And there you that's go. That's the plan. <laughs> um, and well, I'm assuming I have a question here written down, but like I'm assuming you obviously you're not regretting this this big big failure you had because of much of so much learning that mm-hmm. this brought with it. Yes. Um, how does one lift herself from it? Like, um, it, it must have been quite hard to, I suppose, to just you know it didn't happen. You woke up the next morning like, well, that's it. I've learned a lot. Yeah. It was obviously process it was a process it was and I think what's interesting it was and I I find this to be true in so many other contexts as well I was so much harder on myself for this Mm. failure than anyone around me so as I went out and started talking you know I I had the great I say the great fortune now uh because it didn't feel like it then but I was 
I was broke. When my company failed, I put all of my money into the company. I didn't have, I literally was paying my rent with a cash advance off my credit card. I don't come from family money. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a partner. I had no other income I could rely on. So I had a burning platform. There was a sense of urgency that was like, okay, enough, you know, feeling bad for yourself. Go get a job. <laughs> like, what yeah. do you just do? Um, yeah. And so that urgency forced me out of bed and to take a shower and to eat some vegetables and then to go talk with everyone I knew and to ask for help. Because I was like, I don't know what to do and I have to do something. And so I went and asked everyone effectively, what do you see when you see me? Right? What do you come to me for? When have you seen me happiest? How do I stand out against my peers? I needed them to reflect back to me what they saw. And not one of them held this failure against me. In, in All they were interested in was what did you learn from it? And under what circumstances might you try again? And I, I realized that if they weren't going to beat me up for it, then why was I beating myself up for it? And it forced me out there and and to move on. And by being open about the failure rather than try to spin a story and sort of pretend mm-hmm. it never happened, it allowed me to actually get past it much faster. You know, I know lots of people who've had failed startups, but they tell a story of like, oh, well, we were acquired. They were like acquired for a dollar. Or, yeah. you know, <laughs> they say it's still going. And you're like, you haven't had a revenue in seven years, but you just, you kept, the, yeah. you know, the LLC open. So it, if you're not being honest with yourself, it's really hard to get over it. But if you can tell that story and you can stop beating yourself up for it, it's actually a lot easier to move on. Yeah, love it. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is something you talked about um, at the very beginning about us moms and mm-hmm. not having time for everything <laughs> what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And this is so true. And it seems these days that the only way to be successful is to work long hours. It, it feels mm-hmm. like the quality of our work is measured by the amount of hours we spend in our jobs. And I really, really don't like that narrative because first mm-hmm. of all, I simply can't. I have two children. I have to pick them up at five o'clock from mm-hmm. crash from mm-hmm. the childcare provider mm-hmm. here. And, you know, I, I cannot stay behind. And I really, really don't see a need. If we get efficient in work, there, there mm-hmm. won't be a need for this. Like, yes. you know, so... Um, and also I want to do other stuff. I love my exercises. I want to do this. I want to try different things. So I suppose, how do you do that? Can you tell us more about how you manage all that workload? And also in your book, you talk a lot about burnout. And tell us about the research you've carried out, uh, carried out uh, for this book. And what do you usually say about the burnout? Yeah. So this is super important because I think the oh. default in capitalism as it is practiced today is work yourself to the point of burnout. And only then, you know, we'll valorize the burnout, uh, but we won't apologize for it. And we certainly won't change anything that Mm. would allow you to not burn out. So you alone are in charge of you not burning out. Like your job, your boss, no one else is going to make sure that you have boundaries if you don't enforce them. 
And, and it really starts from a place of recognizing you deserve rest. You yes. deserve rest. I deserve rest. Yes. <laughs> rest is a requirement, not a reward. Right? You don't get a nap because you were good enough. You deserve time off. You deserve weekends. You deserve rest. Your default should not be burnout. So it starts first from a, like, you've got to believe it. Because if you don't believe it, you won't enforce the boundaries. Second, it it comes from, and I point to this, the research in the book of, of um, manufacturing lines and uh, some of the research around like 85% capacity is sort of the sweet spot when even if everything could run at 100%, they still max out at 85% because they recognize that you do have to do maintenance. You do, you're going to have mistakes. You're going to have do-overs. You're, people are human and you need capacity for that. And planned downtime is cheaper than unplanned downtime. Or put it in human terms, I like to say you can either take a nap or you can get pneumonia. One way or another, you're going to find your way into your bed, right? So um, think about how can I proactively ensure that I'm taking care of myself rather than burn out to the point where I'm forced to, to be in that position. And then the last thing is around, you know, the expectations of everyone else. And it can be very hard depending on the culture of the company that you work for and how the leadership leads. And some of this really depends on if, if you're not in the right culture, if you don't have leadership that is modeling this, you might have to really think about changing roles, changing companies, because they're going to take advantage of you up to the point that you let them. So, so first and foremost, you know, reward the companies and the leaders who respect that we have lives outside of work. Respect that we have families and that I have never met a person more efficient in their work than a mother with young children. Ever. I can get Especially done. Especially when the child is sick. Like, yes. I'm never more efficient in my I life. I can get done in 30 hours what I used to take 80 hours to do. It is insane. Yes. And now when I, you know, I'm traveling for work or something and I don't have the morning routine, the bedtime routine, the sneaking yeah. out of bed bedtime routine, I'm like, I could do twice the work that I used yeah. to in this period now. So... I I love hiring parents with young children because I know they're going to get it done. Yes. And they're going to get back to whatever else. We're not going to waste time in a meeting that no one needs to be in, right? So part of it is like find the leaders, reward the leaders, reward the companies that have this mindset. And then you put all of this together and you you think about your life as a whole and say, which piece gives me which thing that I need, Right. I need money, I need growth, I need community, I need rest, I need creativity, I need autonomy, whatever those things are that you need. And as you look at the big picture of your life, does your day job meet some of those needs? Great. There's some needs that that it's not meeting. That's fine. No job is going to do everything. But then that means you have to make sure that you have space for a hobby, uh, your exercise, the way that you take care of your health, 
the, the relationships, your friendships, not just your marriage, not just your family, the other parts of you that are still there and that still have needs. You design that as well. And that 85% number is not just about your job. It's about the whole portfolio. So when you look across a week, seven days, and you look at how much time you spend taking care of people, how much time you spend in your job, the time you put aside to your hobbies, your podcasts, the time you put into (laughs) taking care of yourself, all of that combined should only get to that 85% of your awake time. I'm not Mm. counting your sleeping hours. And if you are up against 100% day in and day out, not every day is going to be perfect. There will be some days where you're you're really pressed for time. But on the average, 85% is the goal. And if you're consistently exceeding that, then you need to reprioritize. And that's when you say, okay, I don't have space for all of this. So how could I design this differently? Maybe this is that moment where you say, I don't have time for the hobby and the day job. So I need to find a different day job that meets the needs that the hobby is currently meeting because I need to be more efficient with those working hours. I need creativity in my day. That is a non-negotiable, right? So, So this is where it starts to get, you can tweak, You might do a wholesale rewrite of your portfolio. This is really where it gets quite personal. But I think if you start from the belief that you deserve downtime, you deserve rest, and you deserve to have your needs met, and then design your life from there, then hopefully you'll find a little bit more sustainability. I love that advice, Christina. And you know, I think the most important thing in all of this, you said at the very beginning that we are in charge of this ourselves. Nobody's going to come and set our boundaries and nobody will come and say, you need more time for this or you need less time on this. You're in charge of this yourself. And we all just need to, once we know what we want, we just need to design it in that way. Yeah. But there's nobody coming to rescue us for it. We just need to do it ourselves. And I absolutely love that advice. And yeah. um, I think that's the actually a good way to finish this. <laughs> oh my God. There is the end of my very first podcast. Congratulations. I, yeah. Some technical issues. We'll see how it goes when I put it all together. But we'll see. It doesn't have to be perfect. As we it said doesn't. earlier on, it does not have to be perfect. Probably you won't. But thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time. You have no idea how much I appreciate that. Uh, thank you. You're absolutely wonderful. Congratulations on all your achievements. Thank you. And yeah, I don't even know what else to say. <laughs> I feel like there's nothing else I could say probably to match everything what you've done. Um, so thank you so much again. Of course. Absolutely brilliant. It was my pleasure. And please stay in touch. Thank you. I will. There you go. Everyone could hear this. Christina Hollis asked me to stay in touch. I will. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and see you next month.